Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrich is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Michelle Richter to the podcast today. Michelle is a senior agent at Fuse Literary, representing leaders in the crime fiction community, award winners, and debut authors. She joined the agency after eight years in editorial at St. Martin's Press, where she worked on fiction and nonfiction with high-profile personalities, New York Times bestsellers, and debuts. She has built her career finding underserved clients with major talent and helping them jump their careers to the next level. Michelle, I am so looking forward to this conversation. I'm so happy to be here. Well, let's start where we, you know, where I always like to start and talk about your journey on your publishing um, path. So, you know, you're a well-known agent now, but um, you started in editorial. Tell me what what drew you to going into publishing. Well, I um, actually have my bachelor's degree in economics, and I used to work in banking and finance. And in 2004, I was working for a mutual fund company in Baltimore, Love the people, love the city, hated my job, and my soul was slowly, slowly dying. So um, I, I wanted to do something that brought me joy, and I always loved books, and I always loved crime fiction, and I found out about the publishing program that's a master's degree program at Pace University, and quit my job and did that and had a few internships and then got my full-time job at St. Martin's Press. So tell me about the the degree and and what it you know did it immerse you in all the possibilities of publishing or or how did that help you help prepare you for that that career Well because job? I was doing a complete pivot it really taught me a lot about all the different um career paths you can follow in publishing whether that's editorial marketing publicity um, sales, mm-hmm. um, how all the departments work together. Um, there was a really great network of people who were publishing pros who were our faculty. And then we were surrounded by some people who were just trying to break in like I was, but also people who were already working in the industry and guest speakers and, um, all of that really, you know, just plunged me right in. It's, a uh, 36 credit program, you have to do a thesis, which is based on either a research project um, or an internship, which also includes research. Um, So I did two internships while I was in the program, one um, in publicity at Tor Forge, which was Mm -hmm. really great. Um, Even though I walked in there not a sci-fi fantasy fan. Um, it taught me so much about all the things they have to do to promote a book. Mm-hmm. And these people are hardworking in publicity. Let me tell you, um, <laughs> they are handling so many books at once. It's it's really 
bananas. It's so impressive. Uh, I learned so much there. And my other internship was in marketing at Simon & Schuster. Also Mm -hmm. great. Uh, Taught me a lot. Um, Taught me that marketing is not my favorite, Um, but it's very hard. And I have the utmost respect for the people who can do it well, uh, because it is definitely a skill set. Yeah. That that changes all the time, too. It's not like it's a toolkit that is forever. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You really need to keep, um, you know, researching and pivoting and, you know, something that can work great for this book isn't going to work at all for this other book. Um, And, you know, new platforms and um, in social media and in book selling, it's, Yeah. yeah, you always have to be thinking and adapting and researching. So you got these internships and then you you got your uh, degree and did you have to move to New York in order to to work in publishing or did you feel like you did? Because I'm also, I'll tell you what my follow-up will be, is is post-pandemic has that changed? Um, But at the time, did you move to New York in order to, to get a job? I did. I moved to New York for my program, uh, my graduate program, because that was based in New York City. And they do have some classes that are online and they've expanded it more um, since then. But at that time, I really did feel like I needed to move to New York. I wanted to move to New York. Um, I was in a fortunate position uh, compared to some folks who were younger and didn't have as much money and didn't have um, perhaps as much of a support system as I did. Um, but, you know, I did have a husband and I had come from a well-paying job and yeah, I was grown. I was not, you know, <laughs> fresh out of college. Um, so I was lucky in that respect, but it was also, it was challenging. But yeah, I, I definitely think especially at that time, if you wanted to break into publishing, especially at a big house, you really needed to be in New York. Do you think that's still true? In many ways, yes. Um, It did, things expanded and changed a bit um, during the pandemic, especially when everybody had to be remote. And a lot of people wanted to stay remote and are only making a change now of having to be either hybrid or in person. Some people didn't want to come back. Some people are perfectly happy to just be in the business in whatever way, and they don't need that big five spot. And there are people who are scattered all over the country who are working as agents, um, at independent publishers who are able to work remotely, but it is really challenging. If you want to do the traditional big five apprenticeship, start as an editorial assistant or a sales assistant or publicity assistant, work your way up. For a lot of people, you do have to work in person in New York. Um, I want to go back just another step. This is the Julie two step, but um, you know, you, you had had a career, had a life, had experience, and then you went to your, do your graduate degree. Um, in a different field. Uh, you know, I work with students a lot. I, I teach arts administration classes, and I always suggest that they get some work experience before they go to graduate school because you have a different perspective. Now, you had a whole different career, but what did that life experience 
bring to the table as you were getting this graduate degree um, that you might not have had were you 22 years old? I, I definitely was immersed in, you know, an office structure in a way that mm -hmm. a lot of recent graduates don't have experience with. So I was used to working with groups of people with multitasking with, um, you know, reporting to one big boss, but having side projects or things I had to do for people in other departments. Um, so that was helpful. I did also get so much from the program though, teaching me how things worked at a big level in a publishing company, how all the different departments reported to each other and interconnected and how it's almost like a wheel mm -hmm. with editorial at the hub, you know, not like I'm saying editorial is better than anybody, but, you know, without content, they don't have anything to work on and how it all breaks out from there. So I think that was really helpful. Um, you know, there were, there were pros and cons of being, you know, a 30 something starting at the bottom in an industry uh, surrounded by younger people. But, you know, I wouldn't go back and change it. I'm, I'm so happy that I pivoted and, and I'm doing this. It's, it's the best. I mean, do I wish I had more money? Sure. Who doesn't? <laughs> well, let's talk about the editorial assistant job. So you, you did your internships, publicity and marketing, and then you got your first job in editorial at St. Martin's. Um, Tell me about what that job is and, and, you know, and what, what it's like to be in that part of, of publishing. I mean, you really, you really were reporting to somebody else and doing everything to prop them up, um, answering their phones, um, making copies, running them all around the building. When I first started, we didn't have e-readers, um, <laughs> so if you wanted to share a manuscript with somebody, um, if my boss wanted to share a manuscript with somebody, I had to go to the photocopy machine and make 10 copies of a 300 page manuscript uh -huh. and then run them up and down the stairs to the people who are in the various departments. You know, there were people from editorial and sales and marketing and publicity. So, yeah, I was walking up and down the <laughs> stairs of the Flatiron building and sit in that copy room <laughs> really hot um yeah breathing you know, those like, fumes yeah yeah um i'd be talking to authors and letting them know um you know we're sending you your um copy edit and you have to get it back to us by x date or ordering books for them or um answering questions they had about you know the production process or anything that was going on, um, especially if my boss was at a meeting, um, I'd schedule her lunches for her. Um, she was doing lunches with agents and authors and, you know, so many meetings, so many meetings, some of these meetings I would go to too. Some of them I wouldn't. Um, it was really an apprenticeship, just being there and learning from her, sitting in meetings with her, taking notes, getting coffee for people. Um, yeah, I just, I just learned a ton from her, um, writing copy for mm -hmm. the catalog, um, 
routing jacket copy. Uh, we'd have like a proof of the jacket and I'd have to run it to the publisher and then bring it back to production. So a lot of like running and answering phones, you know, good, good times like that. <laughs> now, as you, um, you worked in that job, did you, did you move and have your own authors at a certain point or, or, you know, develop the sort of the editorial clients that, or, or did you serve as the editorial assistant um, for your entire career there? I stayed working with the same editor the whole time I was at St. Martin's, but I did acquire my own books as well. So I would have to work on stuff for my authors and for her authors. <laughs> so it was a lot of multitasking. I had a big bulletin board next to my desk that had the production schedules for every book. So, you know, it would be like 20 books at once for multiple wow. seasons. Um, you know, this book might've just published, but this one's publishing in a year and all staggered. So Michelle, one of the things that I think people, um, uh, don't always understand, and this is going to move into our conversation about aging is that, you know, you, the editor may love a book, but they need to go to the sales meetings and they have to pitch the book and everyone's mm -hmm. got to buy into it. And it's not just about the wonderfulness of the book. It's about the calendar and, and spots open and everything else. Can you talk a little bit about those, those editorial decisions that are business based as well? Sure. Um, not only would I have to like a book and think it could sell, but I would also have to have colleagues who agreed with me. Um, and I would still then need to convince the editor in chief and the publisher that this book has merit, that it can sell, that there's an audience for it. Um, sometimes you could fight for it. Uh, sometimes you can't you'll get shut down and they're looking at it you know that there is an audience how many copies they think you can sell so you'd be comparing that book to another book um, that was published by your house within the past two or three years as well as other books in the marketplace to try and figure out projected sales figures um, and then you would do a profit and loss statement. So you're thinking that you can sell maybe 30,000 copies of this book along with audio, along with ebooks, and you'd have certain percentages that you would project for that. Um, that you think, okay, if I publish this book in a trade paperback format, it'd probably be this money pages. So the price would be this. And Therefore, this is the amount of money I have to play with. Mm -hmm. And then you would get approval from the publisher, the editorial director, the finance officer to say whether or not you could make that offer. And even if you do get the okay to make the offer, it doesn't mean it's going to be enough for what the author and the agent are expecting. So interesting, because then after eight years doing this, you pivot into agenting. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to be on the other side table. Talk to me about that transition for you career-wise. I wanted to be able to still do the things that I really loved, which is working with authors, helping, helping them develop their careers, um, networking with editors, um, 
all of the fun stuff, edit, editorial feedback. Um, but it gave me more freedom, um, more flexibility. I get to work with only the people I really love to work with, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I didn't love all the authors I worked with, but now yeah. I really love the authors <laughs> I work with, uh, you know, because I handpicked them. Um, so when I was thinking I wanted to make a move, I reached out to an agent who I was friendly with from conferences we'd been at together. And he was somebody who I thought was really nice, really smart. I valued his input. Uh, I trusted him. So I just reached out and asked him if I could pick his brain about being an agent. And we ended up on the phone for like two or three hours just talking about, you know, the agent life. And um, a couple of weeks later, he came back and told me that he'd talked to his partners and they wanted to know if I wanted to join them. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I've been there ever since. So tell me about um, about what an agent does. Is <laughs> that a big question, right? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Uh, I can spend my day doing so many different things, and it's rarely the things that I planned on doing that day. Um, I could be reaching out to a film co-agent to ask them about, you know, what the writer strike did to the clock on the contract that we had for an option. I could be um, pitching books to editors. I could be taking offers, negotiating contracts, um, reading new client manuscripts, giving them editorial feedback, um, talking them through a crisis, (laughs) celebrating a client's new release. planning which conferences I'm going to go to and which ones I'm not. So many different things I'm juggling. And, and you know, then reading my slush pile all comes separate from that because I have to read my clients and work with my existing clients first mm-hmm. before I can read my submissions in my inbox, which is why I'm so far behind all the time. Um, well, I can only imagine how many... <laughs> submissions you get so you're you had within the uh St. Martin's had to pitch books and to to sort of develop that skill as an Mm -hmm. agent you need to do that as well do you find that uh, having developed or worked in editorial lets you create a better pitch when you're talking to agents or other publishing houses because you know the sweet spots you know what they need to know in order to take a book art but writing is never easy writing a pitch is still challenging no matter how long you do it um if i'm really struggling with something i will share it with one of the partners and ask for his input and he's always happy to do that um and he has a good eye for it and working with other people to you know, look at your pitches helps you get better. I think mm-hmm. it's harder to get better in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. But if you're bouncing an idea of somebody and they don't know the book, they can really point out what's missing, what you're, you know, slogging with too many details, get to the heart of it, have an attention grabbing headline, that kind of thing. 
And so much of this business on all levels is about uh, relationships. It's about relationships, writers with, with folks. It's about your relationships with editors and, and other writers and, and likely other agents. Um, can you talk about the importance of that and of community? Because I talk about that a lot from the writing standpoint, how writers don't understand how much they need community. Um, but from your standpoint, talk to me about those relationships in that community. Well, there's the relationships that I have with my colleagues that help me be a stronger agent, that help me boost my clients' work, that give me another ear when I need it, uh, that help me cheer them on, that help me through hard times. There's relationships with editors that I need to develop in order to get them to read my submissions first because they are mm -hmm. drowning in submissions too. Mm -hmm. And you really want to pop up out of the inbox and say, oh, you know, something new from her. I like her. Uh, we have a good relationship. Yeah, I want to see right. the new thing. Um, so you're developing that too, which is not to say that you can't send something to somebody you've never approached before. But if you've met them at a conference, if you've sent them something else, if you already have something else uh, that you've worked on, or, you know, even with a couple of my clients, their editors are people that I used to work with at St. Martin's. And I knew they were brilliant. And turns out they're even smarter than I knew <laughs> as a colleague. But now mm -hmm. that I can see them from the other side and how they work with my clients, um, that's really exciting. And then, of course, I have um, the relationships with the authors I represent. Um, there's no one size fits all relationship that's ideal because different authors need different things. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of it is about personalities and how you mesh. And I could be the best agent for, you know, Kelly Garrett. And maybe somebody else would be like, I don't see her the way you see her. And that's fine. Um, I might not be the best for somebody. And somebody else, we could work really well together. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize that, recognize what you need as an author from your agent mm -hmm. and figure out whether you're asking for that. Um, you shouldn't hold it inside yourself and just simmer, but figure out what's important to you and, and ask for that. And then, of course, um, you know, I'm networking with agents at other agencies, um, with authors I don't represent, um, mm -hmm. just because I love this crime fiction community. And, um, you know, that can help like if I want a blurb for one of my clients mm -hmm. um, or, you know, if I just want to celebrate them. Some people, I just love their work and I love them as people and they're not my clients. And that's okay. I can celebrate people who I don't represent. In fact, somebody at the Anthony Awards was on her way to the podium after winning an award and her agent wasn't able to be there. And she hugged me on the way. And somebody's <laughs> like, why? She's like, I needed a friendly face. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was um, like happy to be a stand-in. <laughs> 
and happy to celebrate. I mean, you know, it's 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 always a thrill, no matter you know what the situation. To when you see somebody reach a pinnacle like that, exactly. Now you talked about something that I think when folks are first querying, or even when they're requerying mid-career or whatever, um, as writers, we can feel so disempowered in this relationship. But you talked about the importance of being the right fit with a client and and an agent. And, you know, that business relationship <laughs> um, needs to mesh and, and not keeping it inside. Oh, I know how important that is. But can we talk about that a little bit? Because I think sometimes people um, don't follow their gut enough or, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of. They're reaching for this and, you know, that may not be the best fit and it's hard, but, but how important that meshing is. I think it is so important that you're honest with yourself about your expectations and about whether you need somebody who is the big fish or whether there's somebody who is hungry and going to dedicate themselves to you in that really personal way. You know, do you want somebody who's going to be your friend? Do you want somebody, which I can't promise, of course. I think it's important to aim for a business partner. Um, Somebody who you really think has your back, who you think you can trust, who you can be honest with. If you're afraid to tell the truth, to your agent, if you're afraid they're going to yell at you or they're going to be mean to you, then that's probably not a good fit. Um, Some people want that big agent who is the agent for their hero. And if they're kind to you and if they sell their, your book and they treat you with respect and you're happy, then great. That's fantastic. But other people just feel anxious all the time. And I don't know how that can possibly serve them well. Even if they sell your books, if your sales go down, are they going to hang with you or are they going to drop you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're having a crisis of whatever kind, a health crisis, a writing crisis, a life crisis, and you reach out to your agent, are they going to get back to you or are they going to blow you off? You know, you need to think about some people really need a scheduled conversation with their agents. Some people are like, just tell me if something's happening. Some people are going to send me daily Facebook messages. And, you know, where do you fit on the spectrum? What's important to you? Um, How do you like to relate with somebody? You know, is it DMs? Is it emails? Is it text messages? Um, And does the agent that you want to work with work in that same way? So important. Um, Let's talk about uh, what an agent does. And then I'm going to ask you some questions that people ask me to make sure that I've been answering them (laughs) the right way. Um, The reason folks will query agent, you know, certainly Certainly there are paths where you can be published without an agent these days. Mm-hmm. There are small presses, there are indie, you can indie publish. Um, but an agent may have 
in ways of getting into a, a bigger house, if you want to be uh, traditionally published, um, can look at contracts for you. Can you talk to me about that uh, business relationship and how that can, how that might support a writer on their journey? Well, as you mentioned, um, yes, we definitely would negotiate contracts and review contracts. Um we're tapping into our contacts to try to get um, editors of bigger houses. And we're going to be sending to many of them at once, usually. Uh, I can't speak for everybody. Um, and we have a better shot of getting in at a big five than an author might on their own. Um, sometimes there are, are events or open submit periods that they'll announce, but um, you have to be a little tapped into the industry to even find out about those sometimes. Yeah. It's also um, subsidiary rights, um, other rights. I mean, an agent yes. can also help you sort of expand what's possible. Yes. We are looking at whether it fits best for us or the publisher to take um, audio rights out to the market because sometimes we have some flexibility depending on who the publisher is that's acquiring print rights. Everybody who's acquiring print rights now wants ebook rights. It it wasn't always the case, but well, there weren't always ebook rights. Um, but a lot of them now insist on taking audio. Sometimes an agent could hold on to that and try and sell them themselves. Um, foreign rights, Sometimes a publisher insists on taking foreign rights as part of their deal. Um, sometimes they don't. So when does it make more sense for us to sell them uh, or to give them to the publisher? Not give them, they're paying for them. Um, so we're thinking about, you know, who who it makes more sense to do that. But we're also um, advocating for our client uh, educating our client, you know, if a blurb comes in and it doesn't show up, um, you know, online, do we, you know, talk to the publisher for them? If there's a question about something in the production process, if there's a problem getting their royalty statement or their money, um, if they're just unhappy about how something's happening, um, it's often us advocating for our clients, especially because we would rather have the publishers annoyed with us than with our clients. So we'll get to be the bad guy. Right. So if someone hates their cover, they would talk to you and you would either talk them down or go to the eight, go to the publisher or, you know, yes. whatever you'd smooth the waters, no matter which direction that needed. I to mean, happen. when we can, right. we want to make our clients happy. Sometimes we can't win that fight, but we will try. Well, I talked to some indie authors who have um, degrees of success in different ways um, or, um, you know, or are interested in taking a book that had some success in the series and reaching out to an agent and having, seeing if that book can, can have a wider uh, world. Now, my advice is always that, that that's not likely to happen, that if you've got a book with a small press or an indie press, or you've indie published it, um, you could talk to an agent about that, but that book may not have another life um, with the publisher. And my um, 
misspeaking about that? No, I don't think you are. It's very challenging to republish a book that's already been out there um, or to continue a series that's already been published independently, unless you've had fairly significant sales. So it's not impossible that a book that you've independently published, a publisher will take on and republish, but it's pretty unlikely. If it does happen, they're looking for tens of thousands of copies sold Mm -hmm. um, so that they know that there's an audience for it. And they're going to be adding some kind of value by republishing it, giving it a new cover, maybe continuing the series. Um, Right. You know, they're not just going to take a book and republish it without some sort of value added by them, for them. Um, It can be really tough. Now, I would say if you independently published something and you think you want to be a hybrid and you want to write something brand new and take that to an agent, absolutely do that. So we're fine with people who've self-published before, but for a new project is usually the best way to go about it rather than something you've already put out there. And how do you talk to clients who are convinced that they've got the next huge seller when you think this this medium-sized publisher is actually better for your book? How do you talk to them about, you know, where their book will succeed Um, You know, if they've got these huge New York Times bestseller, um, major motion picture dreams for their novel. I really run into that type of situation necessarily because we're talking about realistic expectations. And so if you think you want that experience, we'll work on the editorial of it. We'll think about what needs to change, what works, what doesn't before I send it out. But I mean, I'm certainly going to try to send to big publishers. I usually start with big fives and, and big indies. And then in subsequent rounds, if I have to have them, then I would be going to smaller publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I, I'm thinking about realistic expectations, what's going to work. If we know that something's not working in the market, you know, we're being realistic about it. You mentioned that you've, um, you've, you love crime fiction and that's where you've, you've worked. And, and um, I'd love to talk about what kind of crime fiction you, you agent. But I'm, I've heard from some folks that some crime fiction is uh, being repackaged as women's fiction order, in order to reach a different market or a different audience. Uh, does that happen? You know, these publishing trends could be so tricky. Do you find sometimes rethinking how you're going to position that novel uh, with your client can, can give it a different life cycle? I've seen some um, pivots in categories and what they call them. I mean, and this isn't crime fiction, but, you know, they used to call it chiclet and now it's really just like contemporary women's fiction right. um, or some of it they're, they're calling romance, contemporary romance. And that can be fun. Also what they, 
have called romantic suspense for quite a while. Sometimes I will see it come from women's fiction imprints. Sometimes I will see it come from crime fiction imprints. I've seen some writers who are doing um, fiction from, you know, an imprint at Harlequin that's not purely romance fiction, but um, more of a mix of crime fiction and and suspense and whatever. So I'll see them do fiction there, but then I'll also see them do some women's fiction or they might do some horror or they might do, you know, a straight up thriller over here. So people are being pretty flexible and moving, you know, from genre to genre or subgenre to subgenre. A lot of it is just packaging. Sometimes I've sent a book in thinking, feels pretty women's fiction to me. And then the editor will say, well, I really like this, but I think it would work better with a romance audience if you can add some more love scenes. And sometimes the author says, great. And sometimes they're like, um, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Right, right. And you agent for crime fiction. Todd, do you have specific genres within crime fiction that you're particularly drawn to? Um, or are you open to all genres of crime fiction? I have particular um, genres that I gravitate to more. And some of that has changed and developed over time. So I um, really like suspense and psychological thrillers and domestic suspense, um, amateur sleuth, um, traditional mystery. Those are probably my favorites. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but then there have been some others that I liked more that sometimes I like them and sometimes I don't. Um, cozy will work sometimes for me, sometimes it doesn't. I really liked police procedurals a lot, but right now they're tough. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I like to read a private eye, but they can be challenging. So if I'm taking them on, they have to feel really strong and really special to me. And then there's other subgenres that they're just not my thing, like espionage thrillers, um, military thrillers, things that are just like super macho. They're not for me, like especially political thrillers. I just can't get into them. But there's plenty of other agents who do. So. Right they're going to find their home and that's great. Um, yeah. Tech thrillers, sometimes medical thrillers. They're just that very like Robin Cook, Tom Clancy. Um, if those are your comps, I'm probably not the right person for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. I'm just saying it's not my thing. Noir works for me sometimes, but Sometimes it doesn't. If it's like really dark and twisty, especially if there's violence towards women or children, it's not for me. And I've got certain things that that have been, I just think of, I've seen too much of and they're not for me. I also have like certain keywords in my um, submissions box that I look out for because I know I don't, really want them interesting interesting one of the things that i liked about 
uh, your bio is that you talked about how you uh, help an author build a career. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because it's, it's, you can get published, but staying published is the next step. And also maybe switching genres or rebranding yourself can be tricky. So, so talk about navigating that with an author. Well, I'm, I'm thinking long-term with them. So we may have a goal in mind but it may not be achievable with this book. Mm-hmm. But maybe if we published book one at publisher A, that's going to give us enough of a foothold that we can publish book two with publisher B. And then we can take book three to an even bigger publisher. So I, I've done this a bit with one of my clients. Um He started out with a really small indie and then we moved to a another small indie, but with more of a presence, with more of a um, place in the community. Um, And then we were able to move it to another publisher that was an independent, but they had a better distribution and marketing and publicity and, um, a bigger editorial and developmental editorial staff. So that helped him grow. Like all of these books are helping him grow as a writer, Mm -hmm. but also growing his audience. And when I was selling them, you know, of course I'm submitting to other publishers as well. And there was one publisher who had said no to the book, the third book, but they kept thinking about it. So when he was ready to do book four, they wanted to be included in that. Um, And so doing book three helped me get book four to the next place and helped me get him with somebody who's making him even stronger as a writer and building that audience. And maybe even if, you know, one book at the new publisher isn't quite hitting where you want it to be. Well, what can you do to get to the next place? What can you write? Are you pivoting your editorial content? Are mm-hmm. you amping your marketing? Are you, you know, doing something different with what you're writing and how you're promoting it to reach more people and to get even better? So so we're thinking about that all the time. And sometimes it is a years long project. Um, you know, you want it to be quick, but that's more the exception than the rule. Well, you do want it to be quick, but at the same time, building towards a goal and building a career is must be incredibly rewarding, right? And helping somebody to do that must be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When you get somebody to that place where you can tell that they're really well matched with their editor and their editor's bringing out the best in them and they feel really safe and at home and challenged in a good way um, and they're getting stronger. I mean, there's nothing better than that than finding that really strong match and especially if they want to continue it, you mm-hmm. know, to the next contract and more books and you just see them getting better and better and better. 
I mean, that's really the best thing in the world. <laughs> I can imagine. What do you wish writers understood about your work? Well, first of all, that, that we want them to succeed. I think there are a lot of writers who think that we like telling people no, and we don't. Um, I want to be able to say yes. Of course, I also want to clone myself um, so that there's somebody else over here who's reading and somebody else who, over here who's doing something else. Um, but we want them to succeed. We don't like making people feel rejected. Um, and we get rejected too. We get rejected yeah. all the time. Not like I'm telling you to cry for us. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we're getting rejected by writers that we offer representation to. Uh, we're getting rejected by editors. Um, we're getting rejected all the time. Um, so we we do understand that. Um, there are a lot of agents and editors who are also writers. I am not one of them, but um, I'm almost unusual in that way. I just like helping writers get where they want to be. Um, and. I don't want to get into that space, but um, it can take years to sell a book. That's another thing um, I, I think writers should know. And so if we can't sell your book within 12 months, that doesn't mean that your book is bad or that we are bad agents necessarily. Right. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, there's different levels of quality um, of professionalism, of skill, of networks that, you know, are going to help people. Um, I see other agents who I really admire and um, I see them take on clients that I love and that I kind of wish I could get. And sometimes I think maybe that other agent can get them to where they want to be faster because they have a network at, you know, mm -hmm. this publisher because, you know, they were an editor for 20 years or something. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have people who I look up to um, and who I admire and uh, try to emulate best I can. <laughs> um. Well, and you, you know, you're, you're in the, in the community a lot and talking to people and approachable. So, you know, you go to conferences and, and take pitches at some conferences and folks should definitely take advantage of those opportunities, not necessarily corral you in the ladies room at a, you know, at Bouchacon, but. Oh, yeah, please know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It may not be the best way to to uh, meet, but to say hello and or to you know to be a human being might not be bad. What's your favorite part of your job? Oh boy, I mean the the best part is celebrating the successes, and that can be anything from a great blurb, uh, award nominations. I mean wins at, are the best. I am always going to be that person who, if you win an award at a conference and I'm there with you, which I always try to be, um, I'm going to scream my head off. Yeah. And if some people look askance at me, I don't even care, but I am <laughs> going to be that person who's screaming because my client won. I'm going to jump <laughs> up and yell. Um, I mean, that's the best. Um, I just, love seeing them have those victories. And um, yeah, I mean, that's really the best thing. I love networking. I love going to conferences. To me, they are, 
huge recharging sessions. Mm -hmm. And then I come back to my little bubble working in my house (laughs) and uh, it helps fuel me. So I I do love that. Um, You know, I love meeting editors. I love meeting writers. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Well, and you've been doing this for a while and have some um, amazingly talented clients um, who are, who are doing well. And it's, do you find that the, um, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats that as, as, you know, one client's doing well, you, there's, there's can be a wellspring for other clients or you're finding niches for people that may not have had them before because one of the other things that you do is you do represent um some underrepresented voices and um it that's an incredibly important part of all of our work right now is get making sure that they have opportunities to be heard and to be read and to be enjoyed by everybody so do you find that as you're as you're developing success for one client it's sort of opening up possibilities for other I think so. Um, And I would say a lot of my clients have come to me from referrals or um, from people I've met at conferences because I'm there supporting my clients and talking to my clients. So people will come up to them. I mean, I'm incredibly proud to um, represent Kelly Garrett and we've been together since the beginning and she's you know, co-founded Crime Writers of Color. So I have suggested people join it. I have met people who are part of it. Um, And yes, if one writer succeeds, that doesn't mean that's taking away a spot from somebody else. That means there's more space for other writers. And I think it's very important to um, have a variety of stories. We don't want to read the same story again and again and again. Uh, this country is diverse, so our bookshelves should be too. Do you feel like we're in a golden age of crime fiction right now? I think we really are. Um, you know, I think it goes in waves. I'm hoping this wave lasts a long time. Um, you know, as I said, I... I I love Kelly. Um, I also have um, some other writers of color who are among my clients. Um, But I'm also looking at people who are not on my list, but who I love, like, you know, Alex Scora and Sean Cosby and David Heska Wombly Wyden. Eli Craner is amazing. Um, He is not a writer of color. Um, but he's amazing. You know, he's bringing something really different, a really new um, voice mm-hmm. that I hadn't seen before. Um, I'm seeing, you know, really great queer writers who are coming up. I would love to see more of them. You know, I love uh, Hallie Sutton. Uh, I think Lev A.C. Rosen's uh, book was amazing. Um, John Copenhaver, his book is amazing. Uh, I love Edwin Hill. Mm-hmm. There's so many great writers out there, and um, some of them I would love to see blow up even more. Mm-hmm. Um, P.J. Vernon's another great one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ramona Emerson, just a lot of writers, native writers, writers of color, queer writers. Um, I just want to see more and more and more of them. Um, yeah, and we need to um, 
we need to make sure this isn't a blip, that this isn't, a, a, you know, a, something that goes out of fashion, that this is the change that everyone's been waiting for in publishing for so long is to be able to read a wide variety of stories from different points of view um, easily. Yeah. Yeah. So I, for that reason, I am hoping I do. I'm very, very enthusiastic, but we have to work. We all have to work on this and make sure our own bookshelves are diverse and um, and celebrate uh, so many incredibly talented authors right now. Michelle, thank you for all that you do, and thank you for this great conversation. Uh, your your link to your website will be in the show notes, and I would suggest that if folks. Um, want to learn more about you, they go there, but pay attention as always to if, you know, folks are going to query you, make sure that they would be a good match. Thanks so much, Julie. It was really great to be here. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.